Greetings, future fossils. Since this episode is all about our need for narrative and our willingness to fight over the narrative, I thought I would string a little narrative together for you that's become kind of evident over the last few months of hosting this show. The first episode in March, 138 with Tanya Harrison, she and I asked a question about the solidarity that humankind felt at the moon landing and what it might take for us to achieve that kind of solidarity as a species again. And, you know, neither of us thought it would be a pandemic. But by episode 139, I was trying to stitch together a narrative for how the inevitable decay of the social graph that occurs in a moment like this is bound to open up a rift through which we can see and grasp creative opportunity and then, you know, come together as something better. But then by 140... Eric Davis was quick to remind me that this is a moment where everyone is having those sort of opportunistic entrepreneurial thoughts about what to project through the new gaps in the weave of our collective understanding. And by 141, Nora Bateson was reminding me that those gaps are actually quite large and were quite large uh, even before this, and that there's no way that we can ever entirely paper over this situation or model it in its completeness. So it was really great for Alex Shakar to step in on episode 142 and show us through an exploration of his fiction how the strange new times that we live in call for a kind of multi-perspectivalism in which we acknowledge the limitations of our models, but we see past the irony of everything's context-dependent validity and uh, into you know some deeper and more universal truths, which is what we got to celebrate in 143 with Sanjay Rawal on endurance running as an integral yoga and you know how you can stand and move in the world after being able to live in the paradox of being. So <laughs> now that y'all are feeling jazzed up, it's a good time to drop this episode with Monica Long Ross and Clayton Brown, directors of the totally surreal documentary, We Believe in Dinosaurs, about a creationist amusement park in Kentucky. We had a very interesting conversation about the many roles that religion and science play in their kaleidoscopic mutual remixing here in the United States. And nowhere is that more evident in the completely insanely entropic, ever-branching and proliferating and the endless permutations of the evolution versus creationism debates. Maybe nowhere is it more evident than in this debate the underlying structures of consciousness through which people interpret information, how we are able to structure knowledge, and consequently, how we make it under conditions of radical uncertainty. But before we get into this conversation, I want to thank absolutely everybody supporting me on Patreon, including new patrons B. Frank, Adam Ross editing your pledge up, Obo Martin, Hopa Rosali, Facundo Guerra, Nathan Bernsprung, my old friend from high school, yeah. Billy Mays the third, an awesome looping guitarist friend of mine. Jenica Cruz edited your pledge up. Thank you all so much for helping me keep the lighthouse lit on this show, as it were. Now that things are shaken up, it does feel a lot more like a time when the civic society is making itself obvious 
I feel like the smaller and more focused digital communities are proving to be the most rewarding right now. So I am late to the game as always, but I have started a Discord server for Future Fossils podcast. I've gotten a lot more active on the Discord server than I've, I've been even in the Facebook group recently, although that's still thriving. Um, I'm trying to scale uh, and make that ridiculous request upon myself uh, <laughs> to do this podcast and all the community stuff. But I'm glad to because the time calls for it. And I'm grateful for absolutely every one of you and all the support you've been giving the show lately. Uh, thank you. I hope you all are doing well. Feel free to reach out to me personally, Future Fossils Podcast at Gmail, in case you'd like to share and uh, enjoy this episode. All right. Well, let's get going then. Clayton, Monica, welcome to Future Fossils. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. It's good to be here. So last night I watched this film that you made, We Believe in Dinosaurs. And I don't know how your people found me. I don't know whether they knew that I went to school at the University of Kansas and studied paleontology at a time when there was an active court engagement between creationists and evolutionists in the state of Kansas, trying to get creationism taught in Kansas schools. When I was in college learning about dinosaur science, it was this question of one narrative versus another narrative, and people were trying to get them presented on equal footing to say, here are all of the possible stories of Earth's history, and they're all equal, and we're just going to lay them out. And that was the argument being used to say that this is what we owe our children. This film about <laughs> the Ark encounter in Kentucky, yeah, an amusement park. Mm -hmm. When I was a child, actually, my father helped open Universal Studios Florida, and that one, oh, wow. that one of the park designers responsible for the King Kong and Jaws yeah. at Universal Studios Florida was responsible for the design of the Ark Encounter, which is a very weird trip. You have a rich uh, history with this topic. <laughs> Comes from all angles. Yeah. So at any rate... Um, Welcome on board. And, and you know, let's talk about this. You two documentarians, this is not the first film that you've made at this intersection about science and belief and faith and the cultural factors that keep people hoping against hope. What inspired you to make this film in the first place? Uh, it has a history. Uh, when we were making, speaking of court cases, when we were making the Atom Smashers, our very first film, which was about the search for the Higgs boson, and issues in that film were, will Americans support expensive science and that kind of thing? Do we have the will anymore to do that? And But the Dover court case in Dover, Pennsylvania was going on, and that's where the Dor Dover School Board wanted to get intelligent design, which is a kind of lighter um, version of creationism into the school system. And 
it was all over the news. And so we were asking scientists there from all over the world, does this happen in your country? Do you have this push between religion and science going on in the public schools where they want to put creationism into the school curriculum? And people from traditionally Catholic countries, you know, uh, France and Spain, but all over the world were saying, no, no, this is, a, this is very much an American problem, an American story. And so we put that in our thinking about it while we did this film and we did another film, but we were very interested in this intersection and of American strange relationship with science and how conflicts come. And certainly religion is one of the big ones. So that was, that was the history. And then when we heard that they were building this life-size Noah's Ark and that they wanted to prove that the Bible was literally true and these things could happen. And they were there in their, both the museum and in the ark, they were going to take on evolution. Well, we thought this is a story that we're very interested in because we're interested in these kind of conflicts. And, and, and especially if we do stories about science. So do you want to add Clayton to that? I think that's pretty much it. So let's anchor this story in the guy behind the Answers in Genesis company and the Ark Encounter experience, Ken Ham, who I had to double check and I looked it up. And in fact, yes, he is Australian. What is this guy's story? Because this is, you know, Ken Ham, he was already a celebrity creationist before he started this project. Yeah, the film actually doesn't get too much into his his past or his story because I, I think, you know, we decided fairly early on that we didn't want this to be about one person and about his, you know, his vision because it's it's us, it's America. Yeah, he does have some history in, in Australia as a creationist. He started a group there, ended up kind of fracturing off from that group and wanted to come to America. He thought the prospects were better. And he, for various reasons, chose rural Kentucky, partly because it's accessible to a lot of the country, you know, by one day's drive or, you know, something like that. It's fairly centrally located. You know, it's in a rural place, so it's to a certain extent Bible-friendly. But yeah, we don't really get too much into his story. He's uh, He is definitely the visionary and the leader behind Answers in Genesis. And he, as you say, is, is kind of the celebrity creationist in America. He certainly has the biggest name recognition. We, we When we interviewed, we were... Ken Ham stays on, on target, all his answers, if you want to go... And hear Ken Ham speak. You can go on the internet and look him up. He's done a lot of video blogs. He's done a lot of preaching. He has a certain message. He does it over and over again. And so he is he is in there as building this. But we wanted to have characters that had unique stories. But yeah, no, he's he's certainly. You can listen to Ken Ham all day long. <laughs> <laughs> You know, something that I appreciated about the way that you presented this issue, because on the one hand, the opening of an enormous exhibit, a a giant reconstruction of Noah's Ark, or perhaps the first construction ever, (laughs) 
<laughs> of Noah's Ark with, you know, life-size animatronic dinosaurs and so on. This isn't just about religion versus science. This is contentious within the Christian community. And I found that that, that was a really interesting point that, you know, that there is something innately fractious about this. And, you know, to me, watching this film, especially when you get into the tri-state free thinkers that went out to protest this thing, and then the counter protest that was roped into it, you know, it just strikes me as a sort of um, thermodynamic, entropic process of just constant fractioning, you know, the, the fragmentation into more and more sectarian perspectives. I guess what I'm gesturing at is it's odd that we live in a time when people feel so powerfully the need to push a particular narrative at the same time that the narratives are multiplying and fragmenting in the way they are. You know, this, this film is a lens on an ecology of mind, you know, that our world is on the one hand diverse in a way that makes it extremely creative and innovative. And then at the other, on the other hand, it's kind of clear that we're never going to have this sort of like collective human moment. You know, it's, it's impossible to imagine a, you know, a planet scale solidarity of human beings amidst this kind of thing. It does echo our political, what's happening with bubbles and people being in their own particular Bubble, but another thing that I thought of that another thing that was at the protest was there was a woman who was taping it on her phone who is, was raised as a creationist, her father's still a creationist, she's broken away from creationism, and she was thinking of making a documentary and she'd come there and I asked her what she thought she was capturing in the protest, and she says, all this emotion, all this emotion around. I'm trying to get that in my own life that my father and I argue about this and then these other people are arguing about this and that came to mind when you were when you were speaking of how fractured in this is but the uh, and another thing that came to mind is that when we took this into faith-based colleges and afterwards how many of these kids were grappling and they came up to us afterwards with parents who were one thing and they were trying to be another thing and none of them want, knew what to do with Genesis in the Bible. Did they have to literally believe it or not literally believe it? And in their homes, they went in two different ways. Well, just think of politics. We think about Thanksgiving dinner. I remember it was a big thing. They were telling how to go home and sit at your family table and not get into these discussions on politics. Well, this seems to be the same thing. The kids are coming up to us says, I can't talk to my parents about this. They are real creationists or theistic creationists, even if they aren't uh, young earth creationists. And I want to go in this, I'm going in this other direction. So yeah, it's, it's very fractured. It's uh, the religious Christians are fractured, politically we're fractured. So you're right. It echoes that. And it's um, one of the earlier things you were talking about is, how very narrow and specific this particular belief system is. And Ken Ham has uh, stated in multiple places that they believe, just like Georgia Purdom says in the film, that you must believe in every word of the Bible because 
if part of the Bible is not true, then how do you know any of it's true? So for them, it really is a black and white, on or off type of thing. And one of the things you might have been uh, referring to in the film, one of the characters, Dan, who's a geologist opposing the building of this Noah's Ark theme park, he discovers that they're doing discrimination in hiring by requiring anyone who applies for any job to provide a declaration of faith. They have to agree with the particular belief statement of creationism, which says, you know, 6,000 years old, the earth is 6,000 years old, Noah's flood really happened, that you have to come from a particular Bible-believing church, and you have to have references there. And then, of course, things like marriages between a man and a woman, uh, and that sort of thing. You have to sign this very, very narrow statement of belief before you can even consider being accepted for employment. And so that, that kind of mirrors their ideas really about who will be saved. You know, it's, there's not any room for, for deviation in this, in this particular religious mindset. It's a very narrow doorway that you have to squeeze through to get into their, into their favor. And that's one reason we included the Baptist minister, because, you know, we felt it strongly that we had to show, if we got thrown back at us, well, you're just showing this one Christian group that believes this. And we say, okay, then then we show that not everyone agrees with that. Yeah, and, and I think most Christians, even a lot of evangelical Christians, don't have a problem with the age of the earth. So it, it's important. Young Earth and Old Earth creationists, yeah. Something that comes up a lot on this show has to do with a term Douglas Rushkoff calls present shock, which is where things have sped up to the point that we as human beings are no longer able to adapt at the rate that the world is changing. You know, this is a, a riff on Alvin and Marie Toffler's future shock where back in the, in the 70s, they anticipated a resurgence of fundamentalism and parochialism and people digging in their heels, trying to find solid ground amidst, you know, an accelerating wave of change. I guess, I, you know, I wonder how much of this you think is about the psychology of the world just being insane right now, that so many Americans are entrenched in a young earth creationism or a science denial of whatever flavor that the world has become so large and so complex that it's really testing our abilities to make sense of the information that we get, you know, to, to understand, like we were saying at the beginning of the call, like we don't broadly speaking, teach people how to weigh one narrative against another because you know the creation story and the evolutionary narrative which is not one thing again also you know it's is important to note that within even within the biological sciences the theory is is contentious you know it's not contentious in the way that creationists claim it is it's not like biologists disagree on that front but you know the relative influence of epigenetics and so on it seems to me like part of this is just because the amount of knowledge required in order to feel that you have a handle on the story requires domain-specific expertise that no one is capable of anymore. Because at some point, 
the buck has to stop on an authority. You know, like Ken Ham repeatedly says in your documentary, well, were you there? When you're talking about the age of the rocks, you know, billions of years old, were you there? And so he's making a sort of proto-scientific appeal to, you know, putting these things together through inquiry, through a process, but it's also hugely inconsistent. They're all using these high technological tools to build this thing that depend on the very same scientific principles that they're denying in other areas. It's true. You, there's a lot that you said, so I'll try to unpack a little bit of it. I would say in terms of present shock, you'd be surprised at how eager they are to adopt contemporary science. In their minds, they are in no way science deniers. They're enthusiastic science supporters. It's just they have their own science that they believe is more accurate and, and more viable and, and aligns more with their worldview. But they don't deny technology. They don't deny science at all, except you know, they've just created their own science that agrees with the philosophy that they want to uphold. And what you're talking about with different theories of cosmology and these other things, that's the way science actually works. Of course, you challenge ideas, you try and disprove ideas, and scientists disagree on a lot of these very uh, specific elements. And the creationists look at that as evidence of that it's not particularly good science. And they say, well, no, look, we have answers that are bulletproof. So our science is better than theirs. So they embrace their own science to such a degree, and it, it's easier. As you say, there is a lot of domain-specific information because cosmology is tough and geology is tough. I was talking with Dan yesterday, and he says, you know, it, it takes me, Dan Phelps, the geologist in the film, he teaches geology. He says, you know, it takes me days just to get through some of the basic concepts of geology in my class. But with creationism, just a couple of sentences, and that gap is filled in. And it's very easy to understand. It feels good. It feels like you know a lot. And they also encourage the believers to just trust their own staff scientists. Listen, they've got it figured out. You don't really need to know all this stuff. As Ken Ham says in the movie, come talk to our scientists. You won't understand anything they're saying, but come talk to them. And that's, that's kind of an insidious way of saying, you don't need to understand all of this stuff. We've got it figured out. And then the last thing I'll say when you're talking about Ken Ham, they do make a very distinct difference between experimental science and observational science. And the stuff that's today, now, in the laboratories, they're all for it. But stuff in the past... They believe if you can't observe it, then it's not, it's not valid. And as Dan gets very frustrated by that and says, well, then how can we do you know, forensic science where you reconstruct things out of the past? If everything stops at your own senses, how can anything be proven? How can anything be trusted in the world? So they have a really weird approach to science, and they would be the first to say that they are science enthusiasts, which is interesting however uh, addressing another thing that because you what you were asking is very layered they are afraid and that this comes out of a great deal of fear and as georgia purdy says in the film 
This is to rescue our kids. They are afraid that the secular world is winning and it wins through TV and it wins through movies. And yes, they're afraid of homosexuality and abortion and losing their children to a world that is sexualizes children. They have a lot of fears about the world moving too fast and throwing too much at their kids. So they, and they know their kids are hearing evolution and science, just like Georgia picks them off in the film. This is what they're hearing in commercials, even, she says. And so to bring their kids back, they knew they needed science. And one thing they say in there is what are dinosaurs? They're missionary lizards. That's what, that's what Ken Ham calls them. And he asks the kids to repeat that because he wants them to know, you like dinosaurs? You like animatronic dinosaurs? You want to come to a real museum and see dinosaurs? Well, we're going to use them. And when you're here, we're going to tell you our story, and we hope that you will come back to the fold. So, yes, you're right. They're, they are afraid of change. They are afraid of their world crumpling and their kids leaving the religion and going off to college and studying paleontology and learning science in a way that doesn't fit their worldview. And so I would say it was quite obvious that fear was motivating a lot of what they do, the fear of losing out and losing their followers. Yeah, I think that's true. The, the Rather than it being, as you were suggesting, a fear of society and technology moving too fast, I think, like Monica's saying, it's, it's really a fear of secularism and humanism moving too fast. And there's a scene in, uh, in the film where Patrick Marsh, the lead designer of the Ark Encounter, you know, we're asking him about the Ark. It's being built in the background as he's talking to us. And he says, you know, when I was a kid, everybody went to church, everybody was married, and nowadays, you know, there's just rampant sex out of wedlock. So that's the, as Monica says, that's where the fear comes from. Not with technology and science, it's the morality that's changing too fast. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's also, having grown up in Orlando, where there is an enormous biblical amusement park, you know, along with... Walt Disney and Universal Studios, et cetera. I think it wasn't until I was an adult that I realized how perverse this phenomenon is. The idea of the experience design and the communication of a worldview through immersion in some sort of massive technological spectacle. You know, I, I, I don't think per se, that Universal and Disney realize that that's what they're doing. I mean, like, you know, William Irwin Thompson, the former MIT historian, has talked about Epcot being a sort of the, the, you know, the performance of a particular worldview, an effort to sort of promulgate that in the world. I mean, one of the things that impressed me about this project was the craftsmanship is actually exemplary. I actually kind of want to go see this thing in person now after watching your film. It's amazing that we can decouple a careful study of anatomy an understanding of like 3D anatomical scanning, the ability to sculpt and to construct and to build these intricate, amazing tableaus 
in which you put people. And it seems very obviously, in the case of the Ark encounter, it seems obviously didactic and intentional. You know, they're they're trying to communicate a particular view. But I mean, do they think they're going to win? They're, they're going to convert people with this thing? Or, I mean, I'm trying to wrap my head around this. Like, is is it simply the idea that maybe if we catch people at, at a vulnerable moment that the intensity of being, you know, immersed in the experience of this enormous construction is going to like change the way that people understand time and and reality and the origins of this planet. I can go first, Monica, and then and then you. Is it, or do you want do you want to go first? I, we were both say, but go ahead. <laughs> um, two things: they absolutely do believe what they have to say can convince people. They are that confident in their science and the the depth of the world they have created. And that was one thing that Monica and I learned as we spent four years making the film uh, and talking, you know, hundreds of hours. There is never a time when they don't have an answer to a question. They are, it is so deep they know the answer to every single question you can possibly throw at them. So they are deeply confident about the veracity of their mission. They also know, though, that as many as a third of the people that come visit are skeptics in some way, are curiosity seekers, non-believers, and they, they're okay with that. They don't try and keep anybody out. They want anyone to come in, even if they're the most hostile skeptics. But I think they're, they may not believe, well, I think they do believe that the power of what they have outlined in the Ark Encounter and the Creation Museum could change the minds of scientifically minded people. They, I don't think that happens maybe as much as they think, but what I think does happen is people who don't really know one way or the other, who don't have a, a deep grounding in science, and haven't thought about it all that much, would be or could be convinced by just the, the sheer depth, uh, you know, the volume of stuff and the sciency sounding nature of it. It sounds very sciency. It looks very sciency. It looks just like a, a regular science museum. So if you don't know and haven't thought about it too much, who's to say? I, well, I don't know. This sounds pretty good to me. And another thing, they have an emphasis on children. And they do have school, you know, they offer cut rates to schools and they have schools and homeschooling students who do their their science there and they make their scientists available to those kids. So I think they they hope that they're going to get into kids' minds and leave a reasonable doubt. They have a video that's called Men in White about these two angels who come down and go to a a classroom setting and they question their biology teacher with variations of were you there, but that arms the kids to talk back. So they're, that's one of their emphasis is, is like that. But they also hope for one thing, we have to remember it's about faith and it's about religion and it's about saving souls. And so they really believe that they're on a mission that, if they are right, which one of the character, one of the creationists says in there, then these people are going to hell. So they are actually on a mission to save us from going to hell. And I asked one of 
one of the people when we were doing an interview, I said, so you like me and you like Clayton and therefore you want us to go to, you don't want us to go to hell. And the, the, the one gentleman said, well, I like to put it in a more positive way. We want you to go to heaven with me. And I said, okay, so there is, you have, it's in many ways, they're using science for what they see as a higher calling to save us all. So it, that emphasis is get as many people into the ark and they want to proselytize. That's the, that's one of the tax issues in there. Are they there to save people and proselytize or are they a recreational tourist attraction that should get a tax thing? And for them, they go back and forth because ultimately they want to save us. And they're doing it through science. <laughs> it's it. Or are they teaching us science in order to save us? I mean, it, it's all the way around. So, yeah, it's complicated. I, I'm glad that you brought up the issue of the tax piece of this because I feel for America. You know, when you the president talks about most of the country being flyover states and so on, Kentucky was hit especially hard by the op opioid crisis and so and it's just the sense that it's hard to remove the financial and economic dimensions from this story, you know, and I th I think your documentary does a good job of showing how this was given a pass by the town because it was economically impoverished when it might not have received a pass in a more sort of a thriving, bustling system. There's a link, and I, I'm, take this wherever you want to go with it. But, you know, when I had probably like 75 episodes ago, I had paleontologist Steve Brusade on this show, and we were talking about how right now is the golden age of dinosaur science precisely because of, and it has always been the case that dinosaur science was supported by capitalism and that development is what finds these fossils in the first place, you know, construction projects. You know, the reason that China has become such a hotbed of dinosaur discovery in the last 20 years is because of China's economic growth. And it's impossible to separate the building of the railroads and manifest destiny and the expansion westward on the American frontier in the 19th century from the scientific discoveries of all of the charismatic dinosaur species that we're familiar with now. And so there's this Boolean knot between discovery, science, dinosaurs, history, and capital flow, and then also a faith in some sort of project, you know, like the railroads being a, like I said, like a manifest destiny thing, you know? So it seems as if dinosaurs are simply deployed as the honeypot or the mascot or something, that they're a way to marshal human attention and energy behind massive projects. Uh, one of the first things I think of is Ebenezer, which is the Allosaurus, that you see in the film that was donated there. And that was found by a evangelical Christian creationist who actually said at the dedication, and he has a long past that you'll have to look up, but he said at the dedication, if he said his wife and he talked about it, and that if they couldn't find a righteous place to put that 
skeleton, the Allosaurus, they were going to rebury it. And yeah, I know. And also, I mean, mainstream scientists are saying, ah, that's one of the most perfect Allosaurus skeletons. And it's going to this place which will not do mainstream science and allow other scientists. They're only going to let creationist scientists who may have to sign all those waivers in order to get in there. So it's sort of lost to science. So, But we've heard Ken Ham say that dinosaurs are missionary lizards. So he is definitely using dinosaurs and that Allosaurus skeleton because they, they now say we're as good as the Smithsonian. We have an object here is just as good as the Smithsonian. And that's they say that several times, the Smithsonian. So they're obviously... They want to be, so as far as an economic hierarchy, they want to compete with higher um, food chain museums and they want to be just as good. And that elevates creationism and that elevates their, you know, spiritual goals. And so as far as using dinosaurs and using a very, which on the market, as it were, if it were donated, would be. Like you say, dinosaurs are very expensive. We think of Sue at the Field Museum. Very expensive. These are commodities that come for millions and millions, and you have to do fundraising and everything. Well, they got given one that on the market, other natural history museums, mainstream ones, would have died for to get that allosaurus. So that's what I thought of when you were talking about it. Yes, these dinosaurs are commodities and they are objects of desire and they are being used as tools, all of that, all of that. And in that scene, Doug, who is the one of the head designers, one of the, the lead craftsmen, who's an amazing artist, they're loading in the allosaurus and uh, this was one of the first times we had met him is when, when we were filming that scene. And he says something that it. I think we had to go back and, and do a little research about, but he said, you know, people think we don't believe in dinosaurs. We believe in dinosaurs. And that, that's obviously where the title of the film came from. But certain evangelical sects believe that dinosaurs, because they also believe that the Bible is literally true and the earth is only 6,000 years old, that dinosaurs couldn't actually really exist. And they were placed there by the devil to tempt us, you know, as false information. And so he, he was using this as a, a way to kind of separate creationism and what they believe from, you know, these more silly things that, oh no, you know, we believe in dinosaurs. And here we have this beautiful specimen. The next sentence he says is, we believe that dinosaurs and man lived at the same time. And, you know, we, we see this fossil as evidence not of uh, millions of years, but as evidence of Noah's flood. So they definitely contextualize it in their particular worldview, but they do em- embrace that kind of power of the dinosaur. They just sort of repurpose it and, and fit it into their, their worldview. And the other thing is, it's, it's interesting that he uses the term, belie- you know, we believe in dinosaurs, which we've always found an interesting word choice, that scientists accept things. Scientists don't believe in things. And so when he used that particular term, it's interesting and, and a lot to think about there. Anyway, I think we answered that question pretty. Yeah. <laughs> that is, that's a good question. It's a good, uh, you who care about dinosaurs, this is 
about this Noah's Ark, but what led us to that title is how much dinosaurs are used as an attraction to bring people in. And it, and I know that Dan, who's the paleontologist, he's head of the Kentucky Paleontological Society, he really regrets that, seeing the Allosaurus in the museum is is hurtful for him. You know, scientists go in there and say, ah, what a loss to science. And the creationists say, it's not a loss to science. It's what we, you know, we have a right to it as as a natural history museum. So it's, it, it's really something. Yeah, the way dinosaurs are used and purposed and... I mean, they're used by natural history museums in the same way, though. I mean, I you know, I know that there are people working in the Egyptology wing, for example. I, I had a friend working at the Denver Museum, you know, and everyone was always coming in to see the dinosaurs. I'm guilty of this. And being like, oh, yes, the Egyptology, the gems, the body exhibit, all of this is ancillary. There is something kind of curiously... I don't think it's specific to the American psyche, but it does seem like there's a link here between the power and the ferocity and the mystery of dinosaurs that tickles the same nerve that having a clear, coherent story of our origins tickles. You know, it's like there is something about a flood, young earth, you know, 6,000 year six-day creation story type thing that is easy. And you mentioned this earlier, the, you know, the easiness of adopting the worldview, the model that is kept here. And I, and I wonder, looking at this in, just in terms of like a physics model of cognition and why it is that this view is so widespread here, it's just like, it's just easier to believe in like a charismatic leader you know, like the president, like it's easier for us to vote for somebody that's going to fix our problems than to accept the fact that federalism is complex and messy and intentionally unresolvable and is is meant to be held in, in intention in this way. Uh, and that people want certainty and answers and they find their answers. And that's why it's called Answers in Genesis. And that's what David says in the film. He says, I had all these gaps, but Answers in Genesis came along and filled in those gaps so that he thought he knew way more than scientists know. And think how how hard science is. And, and like you said, it's getting more and more difficult to understand it, even with a basic chemistry background or, you know, your high school class and geology, whatever. It's difficult stuff. And so they come in and they have answers and people can say, this is how old the earth is. This is what time dinosaurs live. This is this. They're easy answers. And I think you're right. And you talked about this complex world and whirling about us. It's, I think just feels better to have some answers and to have someone tell them those answers, which we have, we've lost a, a lot of faith in. I mean, our producer, Amy Ellison, brings up the, this, how there's this, all this distrust in science and scientists. And, you know, and I look at all these dystopian sci-fi things we have going in there. I always say, oh, here he comes, the mad scientist. We have this fear that science can turn against us, you know, and, and it started with nuclear wars and, and um, bombs. And 
we still have that. So Answers in Genesis and Religion and a founder that is absolutely positively knows what he's talking about. Again, it's fear and it it leads us in these directions. And, you know, I think you're right. I think we want we want answers in the name of the company that runs all this, the museum and the art encounter is called Answers in Genesis. So if you're looking for answers, as David says, you go to Answers in Genesis. And in the film, we show the warehouse, which is like an Amazon warehouse. It's huge, and and it has all this material in it, and they say how many tens of thousands of people use their science materials, and, and they do homeschooling, and they use them in their churches. And people buy these things, and then they have answers. And you are all looking for answers. It's just, it's very hard in a messy world. Look at what we're going through right now. You know, there's a great deal of science denial and a great mistrust of science, and we're in the middle of a pandemic. So, you know, I think the film is pretty on on the nose about some of these things right now and, and how we fear science and how we want somebody to give us the answers, but it might be a religious person, not a science person. So... Yeah. So there's another angle to this that you just brought up, which is this larger issue about trust, trust and authority. And where do we place that trust? You know, I work in science communication by day for the Santa Fe Institute, and we've been publishing a series of essays about this pandemic. One of the essays recently published by our social scientists, Mirda Galasik and Henrik Olson, was on how this crisis presents an opportunity for science and science communication to restore trust in the scientific process and in scientists specifically, because what used to be abstract is now imminent. It's now tangible. You know, the idea of a global pandemic is not an idea anymore. It's something that people are actually living with and people, you know, have, they know people that are, that are sick and, or have died from this particular virus, but we're not going to get that with dinosaurs. We're not going to get that with the history of the earth. There's not going to be, unless we enter some sort of weird science fictional scenario where like a time portal opens up and a Tyrannosaurus walks through it, these things remain remote and abstract. And as, as you mentioned earlier, you know, it's this thing about it's not observable firsthand. And so I, th- I feel like your film, in a way, it addresses the ultimate contest, which is how do we begin to rigorously discuss that which we cannot put our hands on and know immediately? And then who do we believe with regard to this? I've had this idea for years that the movement from faith-based thinking to science is not like, in some sense, a difference of kind as it is a difference of degree, that they are using the data set of this particular Bible. And then a lot of people now think that science is about the bedrock of the five senses as your, you know, your evidentiary layer. And we've already made the point that science as it's now practiced is several steps past that. The kinds of evidence that are accepted are far more diverse and nuanced than that which can be, you know, just experienced firsthand. So I don't know. I'm just kind of throwing this all out there for you because it seems like what we have are 
And what what I saw in the film were people who, irrespective of the content of their beliefs, you saw structures where in some cases, I don't know, like, how do I put this? There are for sure a lot of people out there that regard science with the same psychological structure of fundamentalism as the young earth creationists do. There are no young earth creationists, to my knowledge, that have arrived at that belief set through a rigorous and open-ended, provisional, constantly revised, exploratory, kill-your-parents kind of science-at-its-best modality. But the question of what is and is not acceptable evidence, what is and is not acceptable authority, is a very key question here. And it seems like your film is touching on something that is quintessentially American, which is the suspicion of authority that somehow also smuggles in an unquestioned authority of another kind. (laughs) I wonder what your thoughts are on that. Well, yeah, I I think the ultimate authority is obviously God and the Bible. And any other entity that tries to assert any other kind of authority is at best tolerated and at worst outright resisted or certainly seen suspiciously. But, you know, I can think about David, the former creationist in our film, who was deeply, deeply invested in the scientific aspects of creationism. And, I, and I'll, just as a side note, I'll, I'll tell you, you can get as rigorously scientific as you want in, in terms of creationism. There's theories about all aspects of science. And so when those two authorities, say the scientific world and the Bible and God, come into conflict, what David would say is, well, I know the Bible must be right. We may not yet have figured out how the details work, but that one is always going to supersede mainstream science. We just haven't quite figured it out yet. So there's this ability to have this kind of cognitive dissonance where you might believe, well, I don't yet know why that's wrong. I can't prove why that's wrong. But if I think about it enough and we as a group put our minds to it, we can figure out why it's wrong. So I still know it's wrong, even though I don't really know that it's wrong, if that makes sense. So there is a real struggle in terms of power structure and hierarchy. But for creationism, it's very clear where the pyramid is. And it's God, the Bible, and everything kind of trickles down from there. Another thing that I was thinking of, and that's very true, and and in this film, is the journey Clayton and I have taken through our films. Because the very first film we made was The Atom Smashers. And it was really esoteric science. It's high energy physics. I didn't even take physics class in high school, I confess. And I am a storyteller. And here I had people talking about the Higgs boson. And it's interesting when you talk about how people have to take certain things on faith. I mean, there is, when you talk to a theoretical physicist, it's like, it's a different language. It might as well be Mandarin to me. And yet they're powerfully convinced and convincing that 
the Higgs boson exists and that they use these huge machines to find it. And other scientists there are looking for neutrinos. We got into the neutrino research and all these things. This is very difficult. It's going to be difficult for uh, for me to even explain what those things are. So, And then we went into cold fusion with our second film with the Believers. And that, too, is a kind of science that it has a lot of faith and hope and audiences to ask us will tell us, do, do you think that cold fusion can be a reality, which is this echoing the power of the sun in a, a, a small contraption like this on a tabletop that's cold. And so it's abundant and it's uh, cheap and it's reliable. <laughs> Everything we want in energy. And I'd say, wouldn't it be great if it were true? Don't we want cold fusion to be true? And yet it breaks the laws of physics. So, you know, it's, it's difficult to, I, no, I don't think it's, I don't think we're going to find cold fusion, but I can understand how we want to. And so it was another faith-based one. So this journey for Americans, for people to understand why we have super colliders, why it matters that one went to CERN and Europe and isn't in the United States, and why don't we have cold fusion? I mean, it's in SimCity, it's in in our science fiction, it's in our books we read. Why can't we have cold fusion? Because it breaks the laws of physics, which they don't even really know. And so... Now we come to dinosaurs, and we come to faith, and of course, it, it really gets down to science is difficult, and it's slow. We're going to have to wait for a vaccine for a year to 18 months, and people want it like science fiction tomorrow. We're, we're set up by our culture to think that we have instant answers, and that's not how science works. And so it's very frustrating, and people go to faith, and they go to belief in things, whether it's religion or it's cold fusion, they go to some place to find answers. And they want answers that they can understand. They want a president whose language they can understand, who uses $1 words instead of $2 words. And they want answers, and they want to feel in control. And science asks complex, and it's often messy, as you say. This scientist says this, and this scientist, and then they got to prove it with the scientific method. They have to actually do an experiment, and you have to wait. So I think all of that, we live in an instant answers, why can't American ingenuity just solve this tomorrow? And then they say, well, we're going to trust the scientists. And then they say, where are the scientists? Why don't we have a vaccine tomorrow? It's, you know, so I think all of our films, that's exactly what we're talking about. We're talking about the pressures on science, what science is, how people use science. It's a tool. Evolution, the theory of evolution is a tool. And if we're going to find the next antibiotic or the next vaccine, we better have researchers who understand, accept, and can use the theory of evolution. And when we tell that to people, it's difficult. And, that, and, and it gets back to that answers in Genesis of wanting some kind of control and some kind of answer. So all of that came to my mind when we were talking about this. The other thing that I think is very shrewd on the part of answers in Genesis is seen kind of in, at the very end of the film, over the credits, we have this little 
segment where they're telling their supporters about us and about the film. And one of the things that they say is, you know, this isn't science versus religion. This isn't even science versus science. This is religion versus religion. And they make this big point of saying, sure, what we believe is is religion, and this is our philosophy. They're basically embracing confirmation bias and saying, yep, this is what we believe. But then they equate all of science with a similar belief system and say, this is what they believe. This is their confirmation bias. And so they really make it a very easy thing to do to say, well, okay, then which one sounds better? Which one do you like? And that's the one you should go with. So they kind of cut the legs out from under all of science and the scientific method by just equating what science does to what they do. It's like alternative facts. Yeah. And I think that that's really the bedrock of this whole issue, which is that we're in a world for which the salient details of the life of an average person in regards to... um, greater concerns, national, international, planetary, historic, cosmological frames of reference, all of those are out of grasp. So like that, that, that social science article I, I alluded to earlier talks about, we look to people like ourselves for insight because it's easier, homophily, that we tend to project the opinions of our close group of friends and assume that that's you know representative of the the world at large but this breaks down when you know the matter somehow you know is able to move from like a global scale to the the local scale i guess what i'm saying is like how how far do you think we are from the limit of absolute relativity you know at what point do these narratives hit the wall and we have to start telling the same story because, like in the case of the pandemic, no matter what you believe, you know, at some point it becomes a life or death matter. And global warming, too, I say. Right. You know, you don't have to believe in global warming and it's still happening. It doesn't matter whether you believe in it or not. And with the pandemic, too, it doesn't matter whether you think it's a hoax. It's killing people. And so... I don't know. I don't know when it's going to hit the wall. What's the tipping point where we all agree? Well, let's talk about politics. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I don't know about that. I think it would just have to come down to, unfortunately, verifiable, experimentable data, you know, evidence, repeatable. When Bill Nye debated Ken Ham, that, and that's a whole different topic, but the moderator at the very end of the debate said, all right, would there be anything that would make either of you change your minds and say, oh, I was wrong about this? And so obviously the debate was whether or not evolution was real. And Ken Ham said, hmm, nope, nothing would ever convince me. And Bill Nye said, yeah, absolutely. Show me evidence and I will completely change my view. I don't want us to get to the point where we're all asking, were you there? Because that's dangerous too. And I think we do have to stand on the shoulders of generations and thousands of books and millions of person hours of of research. And we can say, okay, yes, we can assume that this is true because it's been deeply, deeply verified. I don't need to go back and learn all of particle physics in order to know how to bake this bread. You know, we have to be able to start somewhere. 
with something that's accepted. And I guess that's a fuzzy area. And I think for the creationists, there's a direction that they go back to, and that's the Bible. They believe every word in the Bible is true because it's the inerrant word of God. And I think we, if if that's not our path, then we we go back to Isaac Newton and, and Aristocrates and at some point say, yes, there's a certain body of knowledge that I accept as real, and I don't need to be proven that. And that maybe that's different for every person. Yeah. Like you say, for us, we're going to accept the overriding amount of evidence. And for a certain group, they're going to say, no, we don't accept that. And so, I don't know. From our journey, I came out thinking that we need to talk about the separation of church and state and that we need to talk about religious privilege versus religious freedom, because the evangelicals will say, well, you're going against religious freedom, but we live the way the United States is, is, it has always been, or gradually became, was that we are a pluralistic society, and that if you're going to teach a creation story in a biology course, then what creation story? Because the Native mm-hmm. Americans, who are American, have a great... You live in New Mexico, and I lived in Arizona for a long time, and we know that there are Native people who have deep religious beliefs about how the world was formed. And the Asians have deep, very old ones. And and we have all this fracturing among the Protestants and the Catholics and the Mormons and, and so different flavors of Christianity. So if you're going to favor one and say, we're going to teach this in a biology class, well, what about all these others teaching in a biology class? So this difference between religious freedom and religious privilege, because everyone has the freedom, but they want certain privileges. I, I came to the conclusion that the separation of church and state might be the only thing that we can really hold on to as a principle that is American, because we weren't going to go and we, we get asked by audiences, did you go into this film and come out of it changed? Did you change your view? And I say, do you mean, did we get convinced that creationism and that the world is only 6,000 years old and that dinosaurs and men live? No, we did not get convinced that. And nor did we convince them that evolution is... And we didn't try to do that. And we didn't try. We didn't try at all. But audiences do ask that. Yeah, I think there is a schism, and I don't know if there's a moment when we're going to come there. But if we accept if we accept each other as a pluralistic society, where I don't uh, I don't do the Quran, I don't do Muslim, I don't do Buddhist, I don't do there's a lot of things. That's the only way I can see us going is that when it comes to these kinds of things, I, as far as politics, I don't know. But when you're talking about getting along. That's the way we've always gotten along, is that we all have rights. We all have equal rights. We don't have privilege of one over it, over the other. But faith is always going to be with us. Yeah. And science, hopefully, is yeah. going to be with us because we need, we need science as a tool. Yeah. I guess what seemed sort of baked into this story that you captured in this film and in the broader arc of your, your work as documentarians is that, and you just touched this, 
that the sort of manifold of possible worldviews is not about to collapse anytime soon and like you know fold everyone into a, a common understanding and if anything it's only proliferating more and more rapidly to the point where you now have the scale of the information and the opportunity available to us in this world makes it such that you can have people that believe themselves to be rigorous scientists that are holding science conferences like you show in this in this movie giving scientific presentations or at least in the style of scientific presentations you know advocating for human dinosaur coexistence and you know this seems to be sort of a byproduct of there's like a related principle like rule 34 I don't know if you you know this, that, you know, if it exists, there is porn of it. <laughs> it's the long tail, you know, and it's why Amazon is so successful. There is, with edging up on 8 billion people on the planet, any imaginable combination of belief components can coexist. And we're entering this sort of recombinant flux of possible worldviews. So, like, looking forward, maybe church and state separation is sufficient but then again, there's this issue where even in, as David Kinney at the Santa Fe Institute said in one of his pieces uh, in that essay series I mentioned earlier, even when you are comparing one model of the pandemic against another model, the scientist has to make a value-based decision about how to communicate the range of possibility in that model so that it is translatable into an actionable policy on the behalf of a politician. You know, that, that there's a, uh, a valve between certainty and uncertainty that is not simply about religious beliefs. It's about every way that we try to map and understand the world and forecast events. And two people are going to come at a model with the same model with different data sets or on different days. And they're going to see different things. So, I mean, how do you see this moving forward? Like, given that you have immersed yourself for years in this turbulent fluid <laughs> of belief and rigorous investigation and the categories that we have created that in some senses seem like maybe insufficient to properly differentiate different salient aspects of our world what is this moving forward? What is the future of knowledge construction and social coherence? I'll say one thing that when audiences say, well, this is so depressing. Is there anything we can do? One of the things we say is, like I said, it mirrors the politics. It gets down to voting. And one thing you can add, you can go to your local school board, for instance, and those kinds of elections and ask questions, just like is shown in the film, he uses the word believe, which scientists do not like. It's accept because belief is a faith thing. So do you accept the theory of evolution? Do you accept that global warming is human caused? Ask your senators and ask your local representative, ask your state legislature, which is very important. Ask locally, ask, ask your school boards, ask them science questions specifically to see where they stand on these issues, because it's going to be it's going to get down to policy. You're not going to change people's beliefs overnight. You're not going to take nobody, including us, none of us say that 
Ken Ham didn't have the right to build the Ark Encounter or the Creation Museum. We're not we're not saying that. We're saying, uh, uh oh, this is dangerous for science. We better start paying attention um, because we need it. Given the problems that we are facing, we really need it. Um, so take your lectures seriously. Ask those questions. And go into your biology course in your high school, especially if you're a kid in, in, in biology, and say, oh, just like Dan says in there, I had all these fossils to bring in. Say, here's my daughter, Margaret. She has all these fossils to bring in, and she wants to know you are teaching evolution in this biology class, correct? And deep, deep time and, and ask some real questions there. Get involved in what the education is around science and how it is in your community. I think that's the best we can do. And I think that is the positive way to approach this, not to say, oh, this is so depressing and there's nothing I can do about it. Because there are things that you can do about it. It is in moments of despair, I guess. It does seem as though there are so many sources of information that are instantly available. There are so many ways to isolate and reinforce your belief systems. I think we are experiencing knowledge-based entropy in a way that I can't ever imagine reversing. So it does seem as though things are going to continue to fracture and self-enforce into spinning little worlds that... um, it's hard, hard to, I mean, so much of this has happened in the last couple of decades where all knowledge is suspect and all knowledge has an alternate knowledge. And it is becoming difficult when you have, you know, just take a, a news source like the New York Times or, or something else that used to be very, very trusted and I think still is, attacked and, and believed by many, many people to be false and and fake. And so at some point, all sources of information become suspicious and are accused of being false, and then all bets are off. And then if we really want to get depressed, true fake news is around the horizon. You know, with with these uh, deep fakes and, and all kinds of stuff, it will be legitimately possible to say, well, that didn't happen. That's that's fake. And so soon we'll be able to just deny any evidence in front of our own eyes as being potentially fake. And that's yeah. We can't. Let's not go down that road too far. <laughs> yeah, that's it's all going to be trust your gut. That's right. how it gets down. What it gets down to. So mm-hmm. um, you know, just to wrap this, I want to wrap it on a kind of a spicy note. You know, I'm not particularly fond of the condescension and snark of celebrity skepticist Michael Shermer, but he wrote a book, Why People Believe Weird Things, and he interviewed a bunch of scientists. We are human. It's important to remember that all of us are subject to the same cognitive biases that we see on display in this documentary, whether or not they manifest themselves in the same way. And that a lot of us harbor under-examined or sort of tolerate like a mutation that isn't sort of actively selected against. All of us have these beliefs that are possibly insane, but we don't have any way to, you know, it's it's not even wrong. There's no way to actually like pry it open and investigate it, at least as far as we know. So I'm curious, 
have the two of you done any soul searching on this with yourselves and asked in what ways you might be uh, embodying or enacting this kind of blind faith in your own lives? Like, what are the things that you believe that you, you know, that the, the rational scientific part of you holds in suspicion? I used to be such an optimist and I could probably say all kinds of things about optimism, but I'm not sure I'm there right now in the midst of this pandemic. Um, hmm. One thing I do think of is I want to say that when we were down in Kentucky, we were telling Kentucky, don't think you're alone in this. You are not alone. There are creation museums and, as you say, um, amusement parks and all kinds of things all over the United States. We're not just we're not pointing figures at Kentucky. This story takes place in Kentucky, but this is a whole nationwide problem. And economically, you're right. You know, the one person in Kentucky said she asked her mayor, wouldn't you have taken the Ark Encounter if they, it had been offered? We would have taken it in a moment. We need jobs here. So I want to say that, that this is not just us going to one state and saying, oh, look at this problem right here, that it, it is all over the United States. Uh, but personally, oh, you know, I'm pretty much an agnostic about everything. So I think within the scientific community, there are times when I would make room for magic in the world that scientists would probably say, mm, wishful thinking, you know, and that kind of thing. So I, I, I'm very much, I live in a glass house. I'm, I'm, you know, and that I think you can tell by the tone of the film that both Clayton and I are not, we, there's no mocking, there's no making fun of people. We take people for what they really believe. We sincerely, people ask us, do, does Ken Ham believe or is he just in it for the money? We believe that he really believes that we came to that conclusion. So as far as making money, that's another thing. And he may be in it for that, too. But a lot of us have that kind of thing. So I think we tried to keep cynicism out of there. But, yeah, the only thing I can really say about myself is I live in a glass house. And I'll admit it. I think when they said at the end of the film and, and all through the making of our film, this is religion versus religion. And the idea that, and this, I think you mentioned this earlier, what, what is it that we believe and what's the boundary between something we believe and something we accept? And so I, I've always, I've since then done a lot of thinking about, you know, to me it seems very clear that believing every word in the Bible is true is a, a faulty mindset, but it is also true I don't really know, I couldn't do any geology on my own. I'd, I don't have any way to prove myself that the earth is 4.5 billion years old, but I accept that. And so I think the way it settled out in my mind is, I believe the scientific method. And if, and if I can believe deeply and, and firmly in the scientific method, I know all of that science that I accept has been arrived at by the scientific method and all of the things that the creationists accept are absolutely not the scientific method but are just someone says it's so and so you believe it. I've developed a comfort level I guess with that dual system I guess where I don't know things but I accept things but I accept things because these other people did it in a certain way. 
with the scientific method. So I guess that if I have a belief system, I believe in the, in the scientific method. I don't know if you would call that a religion or a spirituality, but that, that covers all of the things that I physically can't prove to myself or tangibly demonstrate, but I accept. Like the Higgs boson <laughs> and neutrinos. Yeah, I, don't, I can't point to one of those, but I, I trust that the high-energy particle physicists have used very rigorous methods to get there. Yeah, yeah. And, and of course, that opens up a whole other thing about, you know, like the photograph of the black hole, which was this algorithmic reconstitution of all of this data and, you know, where where the burden on scientific communication lies. Should people be able to understand the world? Well, I mean, can we? No. I don't know. Anyway, this is this is a mess. And I think the, the two of you have done a really excellent job in filleting this mess for your audience and just showing the, the map of the problem that we live in now. And uh, it was interesting. I found myself just watching this film with this sort of beatific detachment. Like it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't upset me the way it used to. This is the world that we live in. And um, it's a curious place. And you've done a fine job of mapping it for us so thanks for taking the time to talk about this thank you great thank you thanks again for listening to future fossils if you want to help kindle the flame of these conversations in the world trip on over to patreon.com slash michael garfield and become a regular supporter or leave a review on apple podcasts or just share with your friends all of those things help if you have any comments questions suggestions you can reach out to me directly, futurefossilspodcast at gmail.com. Until next time.